will. If you would stand with me one more time, as we always do here, we stand in the reading of God's Word, or for the reading of God's Word in honor of His Word, and we have come to a portion of Scripture that is just so glorious and wonderful, and let's read this together so that we can um, jump right into this exposition today. Let's read, in Hebrews chapter 10 is where our reading is, back in Hebrews again, and we're just going through this wonderful epistle. We're going to be reading verses 19 to 21 today. Verses 19 to 21, that is as far as I got. Uh, beginning in verse 19, this is what the Word of God says. It says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, I'll just read verse 22 for context, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Let's pray one more time. Father, we, we humble ourselves in Your sight and we recognize, O oh God, our deep dependence upon Your grace and, and Your Spirit, Lord, to, to bless us and to be here present with us. And so, Father, we ask that You would be pleased now to move among us. Give us understanding and clarity. Give us a heart and a passion. Help us to be excited, Lord, about Your Word because we have it in our possession. And oh, what a great and wonderful, bountiful privilege it is to have Your sacred Word. This book, Lord, for whom men have given their lives. This book that was written by prophets who were persecuted and killed and martyred for the faith and apostles who were hung upside down and beheaded for the testimony that they wrote. God, thank you for your word. Let it do its work among us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk to you today about the nature of the new covenant confidence that has resulted from the cross work of Jesus. In other words, what Hebrews is giving us now is a call to enter in, but that calling is based on a particular confidence that Hebrews says that we now possess. And therefore, it is critical for us to understand that the epistle is really rounding off a lengthy argument that began back in chapter 8. And really, even prior to that, in chapter 6, uh, we kind of left off one of, the last, um, one of the last actual imperatives or commands uh, of the text. And now, finally, after a lengthy exposition of the glorious new covenant of Jesus Christ, His work, His priesthood, His sacrifice, His blood... Finally, the author of Hebrews is going to exhort us to enter in, right, with sincerity of faith. But first, he establishes one thing, and that is that we possess in the new covenant a new found boldness or confidence that is, in fact, superlative, meaning it is absolutely superabundant. We have a confidence that, is, that, that, that should jump out of the pages of Scripture to us. And that is exactly what the author of Hebrews is going to do. In fact, he says here that two things 
uh, we have, if you look at, um, if you look at uh, the, the text, in verse 19, we have uh, the verb there, we have. And then it says we have confidence. And then if you look down at verse 21, there's a second part to that participle, we have, actually what it is. Verse 21, since we have a great priest, you see that? So two things. So I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, in verse 21, we have is in italics. Why? Because the translators are trying to let you know there's not another participle there. There's not another verb there. Actually, verse 21 belongs to what we have in verse 19. So that's the exegesis of the text. That's how it's laid out. And so that's what I want to talk about is what do we have? What is this confidence built upon uh, in the the text that we're looking at here before us now. So let me begin with this. Several things I want to observe. Number one, we have, in the New, New, New Covenant, we have a confidence that is built upon the blood of Jesus. You see that there? He says, we have a confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. It is Jesus' redemptive blood which... When the authors of the New Testament refer to the blood, even more than the physical properties of the blood, they are talking about what the blood represents, what the blood has accomplished, what the, what the blood is able to do. And therefore, you could suggest that in the New Testament, the word blood is kind of code for the death of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus. As a matter of fact, there is a virtual theology of the blood in the New Testament. That's why you find it all over the New Testament in various redemptive contexts, for example. We are told in Romans that through the blood we have propitiation, which means we have the wrath of God averted. We have the wrath of God removed. In Ephesians chapter 1, we are told that through the blood we have redemption, which means that we have been redeemed by God, which means that we have been bought out of the slavery of the dominion of sin. In Hebrews, you know, because... It, says it repeatedly, but in Hebrews 10, verse 29, it will go on to say that by the blood we have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. In other words, we have been set apart for God's holy purposes. Also in Hebrews 9, 14, by the blood we have been cleansed. We have been brought near. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, by the blood we have been brought near into a proper covenant relationship with God. That is the whole emphasis there in Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. Also, Romans chapter 5, verse 9, and really, if you wanted to look, you go to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, and there you will see the Apostle Paul using the word blood and the word death interchangeably. So that blood means death, and death refers to the blood, because that is the work that Jesus did in order to reconcile us. In Revelation chapter 1, John says that through the blood of Jesus, guess what? We have not only been, been forgiven of our sins, but we have been released from the power of our sin because of the blood. The blood is precious. Because it is the blood that, if you would, if we are in a covenant relationship with God, if we are in a covenant bond with God, then the blood is the glue that holds it all together. 
It is the emptying of his life. It is the giving up of himself. It is the laying down of his life for us. That means vicariously, as a substitute for his people. Therefore, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, because Peter speaks lockstep with the book of Hebrews. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, we have a reference to the blood as that which is of infinite valuable, which is in truth incomparable, which means it cannot be compared to anything else. The currency of the blood of the Son of God is not on the level of anything that this world can produce. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, Knowing that you were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold from the feudal way inherited of your fathers, but with the precious blood. He says, as, a, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And what's beautiful about that passage in Peter is that we understand why the blood is so precious. The blood is so precious because Jesus is so precious. The blood is so precious because he was unblemished and spotless. Why is the blood of Jesus so infinitely precious? Why does it glisten with the glory of God? Because it represents the perfect person, Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus is of supreme value because salvation is of supreme value. There is nothing more important than to be saved, than to be redeemed, than to be delivered than to avoid not only the wrath of God, but then to be given access into the glory of God, into the dwelling place of God. Salvation is of supreme value, and therefore, because the blood is the means through which we are redeemed, it is of infinite value. The blood of Jesus is precious also because of what it procures, what it secures, what it grants us. Unlike what you can buy through any other monetary means, all of your possessions, unlike those possessions that can be instantly snatched away from you at any moment, uh, 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 all it takes is a bad storm. All it takes is a terrible earthquake like what happened in Ecuador here recently where hundreds lost their lives. I'll never forget being up late at night. And some of you know we stay up sometimes late at night. But anyway, we were up late at night and it was the earthquake in Japan. Uh, uh, and, and what happened was because it was late at night, all they were doing was running raw live footage of the cataclysmic earthquake and the tidal wave that was moved, the tsunami that was moving in and literally engulfing people as they ran or as they drove. I tell you, our lives are so fragile. By the way, that footage, I never saw it ever again. It was raw. It was, they weren't cutting anything out. But it just emphasizes this, the frailty of our lives. And it emphasizes this, that anything that you can gain in this world can be lost just like that in an instant. And that's why the precious blood of Jesus is so precious, because what it procures, it secures. What it accomplishes cannot be taken away. 
Therefore, the blood of Jesus speaks of the total sufficiency, the total supremacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood is the ultimate symbol of the grace of God. That He would send His Son to die. And the blood also reminds us of this. That there is nothing that we have to offer God. There is nothing that you and I can offer God that will be pleasing to Him so that He will release us from the power and the consequences of our sin. We have no merit of our own. Therefore, Philip Hughes in his wonderful commentary on Hebrews says, The boldness of entry, far from resting on any supposed merit of our own, is justified and indeed demanded by the blood of Jesus. That is to say that within the sphere and on the basis of the incarnate Son's atoning self-offering, and thus by virtue of His merits alone, the blood reminds us that Jesus alone was a spotless, unblemished, innocent Lamb of God. He was the only one. He was the only sacrifice that will do. That's why John says in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He is the, the, the Lamb, the offering that God told Abraham, Abraham told his son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And then you turn and look, and there a ram caught in the thicket. And Jesus indeed was caught in the thicket for us. He was the ultimate promised Son. He was the ultimate sacrifice of the Father. God did not send His only begotten Son to shed His precious blood if there were other options on the table. You know, evangelism is an urgent cry to our neighbor because what we're saying is, there is no other way. God has not left you any other option. The message that we're bringing to you is a crisis message. You are in a crisis. There's only one way, and that's why the gospel in the context of a postmodern world will never, ever be acceptable. It was always going to be intolerable. It was intolerable when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. It was intolerable in that day, and it is just as intolerable today. Isn't it amazing where we've come? That our society has already gotten to the point where it is more controversial, intolerable, unthinkable that you would believe that Jesus and His blood is the only way to go to heaven. That is more intolerable, more taboo, more forbidden, more outside of the bounds, beyond the pale than a guy that wants to dress like a woman and walk into a little girl's bathroom. This is where we've come. And therefore, Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. And the blood makes the message of the gospel absolutely exclusive. Now, I can jump up and down on the blood. All, well, I don't want to paint that picture, but you know what I mean. I can preach about the blood all day and just focus on that glorious word, the blood, the hema of the Son of God. But the second thing is this, that our new covenant confidence 
is built on vital access. Look at what it says back in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, watch this, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And so, this confidence is built on the fact that we have been granted a vital access. And what's important here, and almost, if you're, if you're reading this in the English, you'll never detect it, because it says, we have confidence to enter the holy place. That's all, That's all that it says. But, if you look at it in the original Greek, what the author actually wrote was a little bit different. And always when there's just a little difference there, and it's kind of... Uh, an interesting Greek construction or something, I sit there and I ponder why. And, to, and I go commentary after commentary after commentary after commentary until somebody picks up on it, and lo and behold, I found somebody that picked up on it. Because what he's doing in the Greek text is he's actually inserting an attributive article right in front of the word enter. But it is awkward for us to say we have confidence to the enter. The enter. Huh? That is, that's just not proper English, and so no translation that you hold in your hand will render it that way. But the author wrote it that way. We have confidence to the enter. What gives? He's trying to make a point of emphasis. This is saying that this entrance is the definitive entrance into the holy place. It's wonderful, glorious. It's amazing access to God is what it is. It's entering, and then look also at the place. He has given us access to, and He's given us the entrance into the holy place, which, of course, that is, uh, is going to take us right back to the imagery and the language of the tabernacle. We have been granted access to go directly into the holiest place in all the world. When you were a Jew in the Old Testament, you understood and you know there is only one person in all of the world, in all the universe, there is only one person who was ever allowed to go into the holiest place on earth, and that was the high priest. Everybody else has no access whatsoever, and then even he has limited access. He can go in once a year with blood, as the book of Hebrews says, not his own. Which means what gave him the access was nothing that resided within the priest himself, but it was on the basis of a sacrifice that he made that gave him access and all of it was a picture, a, a, a prefiguring, a foresignifying of Christ. The difference, of course, is that Jesus, He didn't just offer a sacrifice to go into the holy place. The book of Hebrews makes it uh, very clear over and over and over and over again. He sacrificed Himself. That is... That means that the cultus of Israel has changed. That the means that the whole economy of the tabernacle has changed. No longer do we have a high priest that offers up a blood, not his own. No, this high priest offers his blood. And what does it do? 
It grants us glorious access into the very holy place, which, of course, the holy place is equivalent to heaven. Look with me to chapter 9 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, makes this abundantly clear when we think of the typology that the tabernacle on earth is actually symbolic and typological of the tabernacle, which is the heavenly realm. It says in 9.24, Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. But this access has an eschatological character with a dual understanding. Let me try to explain what I mean. In other words, this access that has been granted to us to go into the holy place has, a, has an already not yet dynamic to it, right? Turn with me to chapter 4 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Um, you know this verse, beginning of verse 15. Many people, this is their favorite verse. This is their pet verse. And it should be. This is a precious promised verse that we should cling to with all our might. Hebrews 4.15. This is the already aspect of this access. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was who has been tempted in all things, even as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, present tense verb, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive now in the present, Monday morning, 5 o'clock in the afternoon in rush hour, that you may receive when the kids go crazy, when the marriage is on ice, and when there is, a, a, you know, there's ice in the air, that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. In other words, on the course of our earthly sojourn, God has granted His wandering people in the wilderness access into the throne of grace so that we would receive help on our time of our, of our pilgrimage. More on that later because the book of Hebrews is going to have a whole lot to say about what it is or the fact that our life is actually a wilderness-like experience as we travel through a strange land so that you ought to feel like a stranger and an alien in this place. Real challenge. But there's also a future aspect. Already we can come to the throne of grace by prayer, by faith. You can come to the throne of grace receiving mercy, receiving grace, receiving help. He says, not yet, however, there is also a future aspect. In other words, there's a consummation to come. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Because what happens is that, like Christ, we will pass through the heavens in order to appear before Him holy and without blame because of His blood. There are so many passages on this, but Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that this future aspect of entering in should translate into being infused with an eschatological hope. Did you hear what I said? That in the present, you have an eschatological hope that should be infused into your very soul, into your mind, into your life, on the basis of the fact that there is yet a future installment of the Holy of Holies, 
of an access that will be yet granted to you upon the moment that you follow behind your forerunner, Jesus, who passed through the heavens and entered beyond the veil. Look at verse 17. In the same way, God desiring even more, this is Hebrews 6, 17, to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which is it, it is impossible for God to lie, and I think that's the purpose and the oath, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. See, there is the future set before us in the future sense. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Oh, don't you ever feel in your life. Come on, be honest with yourself today. Don't you ever feel in your life like you are, you are out at sea without a, uh, without a, 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 a parachute. No, I'm just joking. You're out at sea and you have nothing to hold you up. You have no lifesaver and it just feels like in your life that you're just wandering about, that you don't know the way things are going to turn out. Oh, let's be honest. I talked to you. I know how anxious you are. I know how anxious we all are. I know that sometimes people are tempted to say, well, I'm so anxious because of this and that and the other thing. My family, my kids, my job, my culture, what's going on, the news, radical Islam, whatever that you're tempted to reach. For the antidepressant, the most potent antidepressant that you're ever going to imbibe is the hope that you have as an anchor of the soul. Guess what? People that are antidepressants are all jacked up anyway. And I know that's an overstatement that preachers make, and that's okay. I've met them. People on they, they fly to substances in order to cope with the harsh realities that are set in front of us. And I'm not just inserting this here. You understand the background of the book of Hebrews? Okay, you want to bring this into, let's, let's get down, you know, rubber meets the road. Okay, the, the people in Hebrews are having their properties confiscated. What if you, we don't care that you just close on that home. Give it to us. It's ours now. What do you think that will do to your little Christianity? I think it would rock me to the core. They're taking your goods. They're taking your possessions. They're taking your job. They're taking your money because you won't go along with the program of the pagan culture that you live in. But this, so here's a, here's a bigger question now. How did this church, how, how? Did they accept the plundering of their goods with joy? How did they do it? I'll tell you how they did it. They had faith in the hope that came, like an anchor of the soul. They had faith that one day, look, keep reading in the text, verse 19, a hope that is sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has, watch this, has entered as a forerunner for us. The word forerunner literally means he's the first in a line. He's our trailblazer. We're following behind him, following his example, following the pattern of his life, going from weakness to glory. And so the nature of this access that we have is both now and 
yet it is both future. But notice also that in terms of this access, the author also describes it, he describes the character of it, the nature of it. And what I'm talking about is in verse 20 when he describes this at as a new and living way. You see that? A new and living way. Let's, um, let's focus on those three terms. Number one, it is new. The new covenant is new, not just because that's the way they call it. It is new because it replaces the old, of course. But it is new because it is no longer based on the seemingly endless repetition of animal sacrifice. It is new because now we have a high priest who has made a once-for-all atonement. It is new because it is unique. It is new because it is an unrepeatable, redemptive, historical event. It is new because it remains perpetually new for the people of God. There is no other one to come. In other words, the innovation of the new covenant renders the old obsolete. But it is also a living way. You see that there? It is new and it is living. And by the way, that word new, this unique word that the author uses here, Nobody else uses it in the entire New Testament. This is the only time it's ever used in the entire New Testament. This actual Greek word, frost, uh, a prosphaton, that Greek word is only used right here because I think the author goes, no, 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 I just don't want, I don't want to use a, a kainos. I, I want to use something a little bit different that's going to really emphasize a new, so I'm going to use this one word, real unique. It's called a hapax legomena, meaning the only time it's ever used in the entire New Testament, the author chose to use it here to emphasize just how new the new covenant is. We love new stuff, don't we? I mean... All of consumerism is built on new. <laughs> the new technology, the new car, the new house, the new fashion, the new you know, computer, the new iPhone, the new iPad, whatever. I saw an iPad, it was about this big. What are they you know, walking around with television screens pretty soon? <laughs> we love what's new, but there's nothing more to love than the new covenant. It is also living because the new covenant is based on our connection, not with a system, not with a ritual, not with a ceremony, but listen carefully, it is based on our connection to a person. Jesus Christ, the ever-living Christ, is what makes the new covenant new and living. It is also a living way because it imparts life. The new covenant becomes the source of spiritual life. The blood of Jesus represents, listen now, not only the death of his life, but the impartation of spiritual life for us. It is living because in him was life. He is the eternal life. John 17, 3. The new covenant, therefore, is the way of a, of a new and living, um, uh, it is the new and living covenant of the ever-living Christ. But notice that it's also called a way, a new and living way. In other words, we are now on a particular redemptive track. I've already showed you this before, but turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. 
just to show the trajectory that we're on. And, you know, it is a redemptive trajectory. In other words, what the new covenant does for us is it makes us move forward. You get that? The new covenant moves us forward, not backwards. Look at uh, Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, talking about Sinai, and to the blast of the trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them, the terrible thunderclap and lightnings and thunders that came out of Sinai. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it would be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Wow, how awesome was the giving of the law, folks. Verse 22, but you have come. This is the trajectory we are on. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriad of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. You want to talk about church membership? Look at this. Which is enrolled in heaven. (laughs) If heaven has a church role, you better believe we should have a church role. Anyway, just my plug for... That's what pastors do. You know, they get little jabs on the side. (laughs) And to God, to the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Watch this now. Look at how amazing this is for the author of Hebrews. He sees it all together, which speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, the blood of Abel. Because what did the blood of Abel speak about? It spoke of vengeance. It spoke of wrath. It spoke of justice. It spoke of judgment. Someone has to pay for for the blood of Abel. But the blood of Jesus speaks of things that are much more better, much more glorious, much more superior, because His blood speaks of mercy. It speaks of grace. It speaks of atonement. It speaks of propitiation. It speaks of reconciliation. It doesn't banish us like Cain. It brings us in like sons and daughters of God. Now, last thing. The new covenant confidence is lastly built on the supremacy of our high priest. Oh, and look how the author of Hebrews, look at the way he, he talks about Jesus. See, I like little details like this because Jesus is the, the greatest person in the world, right? So I just love finding out little new things and just things that it, but look at how he says it here. And since we have a great priest, that's a unique phrase for Jesus, a great priest, not just the high priest, a great priest. He is a great priest over the house of God. Now, very quickly, what this gives us is this. It gives us not only the priest, the people, but also the place of these new covenant realities. The priest, the people, and the place. And what this is actually doing is that what it shows us is that 
We are meant to have the most intimate communion bond with God. Oh, I tell you what, if you don't, if you don't ponder these things, I don't know that you've pondered deep enough what Christianity is. God taking a holy people into a holy realm in a holy communion bond. That is what our future entails. That is what redemption is. It is Him saving His people. Let me just make a statement here. Because the people are the house. You see that? He says, we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, who, what is the house of God? Well, I'm going to make a case that the house of God is the people. But first, let me focus on the people. The priest is doing his priestly duty for his people. Election is as much rooted in the priesthood of Jesus Christ, what he came to do, that he came to die, that he lives to intercede, as much as it is rooted in the sovereignty of God. Look with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. It's important because it is a parallel in terms of the priesthood of Christ, right? This is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And notice, notice that, that here he tells us that this particular people, because in the sovereignty of God, the Son of God was ordained to die and to pray for a particular people. Namely, all those that the Father had given to Him. Remarkable. John 17, 7. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believe that you sent me. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Man. So who does the great priest die for and pray for? For those that the Father gave to him. It's just amazing. So you have the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the Trinity is all agreed not only as to the means of salvation, but also the objects of salvation as well. Just remarkable. Now, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 3, there the author clearly identifies the people of God as the house of God. You see that? Verse 5. Hebrews 3, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant. That is meant to go from the lesser to the greater. That is meant to go from uh, a type to the fulfillment, if you would, right? From the inferior to the superior. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Verse 6. But Christ 
was faithful, watch this, as a son. <laughs> that's, that's what's glorious about this. As a son, not just a servant, not just any mediator, not just any human instrument, but as a son over the house, over his house. Watch this now. Whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. The house is anybody that puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The house is Christians. The house is anyone who has been born again and put into the family of God. The house is anyone who is presently trusting in Jesus Christ to save Him. The language of the house has deep, 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 deep typological significance, by the way. You know the way that it works is that the house of God is anywhere where God is, right? Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob awoke from his dream that he had about the ladder, this is what he said in total perfect recognition of what has just taken place in that theophany. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. He was afraid, Jacob. And he said, how awesome is this place? That's what you're going to say when you get to heaven. How awesome is this place? It made every sacrifice worth it. It made every war that I ever made on sin worth it. It made every resistance to the temptation of the devil, the world, and the flesh worth it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. See that? Jacob understood presence of God, house of God. Wherever God's presence is, that's where his house is. Now turn with me, last of all, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Because the imagery of the house of God has many applications. In Corinthians, we are told, or even before that, let's back up to the Old Testament. The presence of God is going to be commemorated by a tabernacle, Exodus 25. And then it's going to be commemorated by a temple, 1 Chronicles 22. And then we are told in the Old Testament itself, now listen to this very, very important, folks. In the Old Testament itself, we are given a statement as to the uncontainability of God. I looked it up. That word doesn't exist outside this sermon. Uncontainability. You know, the, the authors of the New Testament, they did this a lot. They make up their own words. And uh, scholars, what, they, what scholars think is that they were groping for language to describe what, they were being, what was being revealed to them. They're literally groped. They had to come up with their own vocabulary because they had reached the limits of the contemporary um, facility of the language. They had to literally create their own language. In order to describe, and so I did a little bit of apostolic work right there. <laughs> the Old Testament itself contains the uncontainability of God. Isaiah 66, 1. Heaven, he says here, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you could build for me? What's he saying there? 
That His presence is so infinite, His glory is so uncontainable, that there is no architectural structure that you can build that will adequately house the glory of God. That is the point. The heaven of heavens cannot contain the glory of God. The glory of God is infinite. And yet, I bring you up to the mountaintop of God's transcendence only to bring you in to the intimacy of God's eminence. And the intimacy of God's eminence should make every last one of us here sob for hours of the reality of what the New Testament is teaching. That the God that is uncontainable, the heavens of heavens cannot contain Him, has decided because of His own sovereign grace to reside in your heart by faith. This glorious God coming to dwell in what Paul called clay pots. We have this treasure in clay pots. The infinite glory of God. And Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 is the fulfillment of all of this tabernacle, dwelling, temple, sanctuary language. Behold what the Word of God says about our new covenant future access. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And watch this now, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If He doesn't wipe them away, I will make the exegetical argument that we would weep for all eternity. He graciously gets us beyond that phase of heaven. And there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning. There will be no longer any crying or pain. The protology has passed away. Because he says the first things. Ta prata. The protology of the Bible has passed away. And so now the eschatology has come. We are now going to be ushered in to the endless ages of eternity. And God will dwell, reside in our midst. The reason why this is so important is again, turn with me to in closing. I, wrote, I know I've already said in closing, but if this is going a little long for you, door's right there. No, I don't mean that. People will come up to me later. and That's the only part of the sermon they're going to remember. No, please don't leave. Chapter 12, verse 12, because I know that every one of us in here identifies with this. Oh, that we might put up a front in front of people, but sometimes this is who we are. Let's just be real and admit it. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of, out of joint, 
but rather be healed. In other words, the new covenant realities of what Jesus has done should be to every one of us a healing balm for our weakness. We right now are in a state of weakness. I woke up this morning feeling that weakness. I woke up this morning going, what is that in my neck? How old am I? I don't think I've ever felt that before. Boy, the outer man is perishing. But it's also religious, right? We can get weak of enduring. We live in a culture that is non-stop sucking the life out of Christians. That is non-stop oppressing and persecuting and tempting and stumbling. And you know what Jesus said. Woe to those through whom stumbling comes. They will come. But Jesus said, woe to those through whom it comes. Better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be thrown into the depths of the sea than for you to meet a holy God on judgment day, having been a stumbling block for the people of God. Wow! But the battle, just like the old hymn says, the battle can be sore and long. And sometimes we get buffeted, beat it, beat down by our own wretchedness, by our own sinfulness, by our own frailness, our own weakness, our own pathetic returns that we make to a holy God. And we say, oh God, how in the world am I going to make it for another 50 years of life? Come on, guys. You know sometimes you've been at that point where your Christianity is hanging by a thread and you're going to wonder how you're going to make it. How are you going to put up a front this week at church? And the new covenant is telling you we have a great priest. You need help right now? You need mercy right now? Go to him through the invisible door of the holy place. Go to Him beyond the veil. Go to Him in your prayer closet. Go to Him in the secret place of your heart where nobody sees. Go to Him and ask Him very humbly and very honestly for help. Let me pray for you. Father, I preach this so passionately because I know this so well. I am altogether in tune with my own weakness, the frailty, weakness, and pathetic nature of my flesh. And so I pray for my dear brothers and sisters here, would you please encourage them with an eschatological hope? Would you please show them they have a hope beyond the veil, an anchor of the soul to hold them together, to keep them together, to keep them fighting another day, another month, another year, to hold fast, as the author himself is going to tell us, to hold fast our confession to the end. Please, Lord, we confess and agree with the book of Hebrews. We are in need of endurance. And so, God, by your grace and for your glory, grant us that enduring, persevering faith, we cannot do it of ourselves. We cannot do it, God. No one in here is super spiritual. There are no superhuman Christians in here. We are exactly what the Bible says that we are.
We're needy. We are dependent. We are children. We need your grace. Thank you so much for Jesus shedding his precious blood so that we can persevere in a perverse and crooked evil generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.